0: If you don't get it after these three minutes, it's probably not for you, which is sad. Hello, and welcome to the EuroWhat, episode 203, dropping on August 15th, 2023. We are a pair of Americans trying to make sense of the Eurovision Song Contest. I'm Mike McComb, and I'm here with my co-host, Ben Smith. Hey, Ben. Hey, Mike. In this episode, we'll be celebrating iconic runners-up at the contest. I can't believe that we are at our season finale for the 2023 contest. I'm
1: so excited for the new year to start. We've been in kind of the doldrums, and it feels like things are starting to spin
0: up again. Yeah, yeah. And it's also just kind of the case, just like, uh, I need to remember how to podcast and how to do these things. Yes. (laughs) So... (laughs) We did a very
1: good job with the early summer content this year of, of allowing ourselves to mentally check out a little bit these
0: last couple weeks. Yeah, it's just uh, we need to start mentally checking in, and that that's where it's like, oh, it's just five more minutes, Mom, you know? <laughs> <laughs> as is customary for our show, we'd like to kind of do a farewell episode to the host country as our season finale. We do have the unusual circumstance this year of having two hosts – for the contest, trying to figure out a way to talk about UK and Ukraine since there's not a ton of overlap in that Venn diagram, if you think about it. Yeah, yeah, like one of my favorite interstitial bits from this year's presentation, was that 20-year retrospective of Ukraine at the Eurovision Song Contest debuting in 2003, winning in 2004, winning two more times, and just having this phenomenal record at the contest, and then contrasting that with the UK, 2003, nil point, sputtering since then. (laughs) It's like, oh, no.
1: (laughs) Like the Price is Right trombone.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Just trying to find the common ground. And like we've already done overviews of their entries. That's how we kicked off the season. But one area where they do overlap is in runners up. The UK currently holds the record for most second place finishes. Last year it extended to 16. Nobody is going to catch up to the UK in that regard. Like France is no. in second place right now. They are at seven and they got their seventh in 2021. 16 second place finishes, that's almost 25% of all second place finishes at Eurovision. <laughs> and so UK, solid on that record. The way that I kind of wanted to structure today, like I've, I've been thinking about it as. Discussing the shrine of the silver monkey, and I'm going somewhere with this. So, <laughs> okay, yeah. I
1: mean, like I'm already on board. Like you, you've hit me in like the the '90s kid sweet spot with that reference
0: right there. I'm ready to go. We frequently joke about the monkey's paw, like wagging its fingers in delight whenever the universe decides to flex its sense of humor with the contest. And specifically, I think the monkey has wrapped its hands around this concept of second place to create the dominant narrative of Eurovision 2023. I would argue that the monkey's influence could be traced all the way back to February 2022. So two, twenty two, twos are going to come up a lot in th- the next couple of minutes. Thank you, Taylor Swift. Kalush Orchestra's Stefania finishes second at Vidbir with an underwhelming jury score, but more than double the televote of the declared winner, Alina Pash's Tini Zabutik Predkiv. Alina Pash is ultimately disqualified due to controversy involving travel to Crimea, uh, which makes Kalush Orchestra Ukraine's Eurovision representatives. The announcement of Kalush uh, taking over was made on 2-22-22. I am not making this up. I screamed when I saw that in Wikipedia. It's <laughs> like, oh, this is, this is kismet. <laughs> Ukraine go on to win in Torino, and the UK's Sam Ryder takes second place with the song Spaceman. This was a huge bounce back from the double nil the year before and extended the UK's record for most second place finishes to 16. Given the continuing war, EBU determines that the contest can't be held in Ukraine and offers the BBC the opportunity to host the 2023 contest. The contest would essentially be a joint production of both the BBC and UAPBC. The first time two broadcasters would be responsible. All right. So (laughs) Uh, I am
1: am running out of red string to put on my bulletin board.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there's more. Now we move ahead to December 31st, 2022. We've got the ESC 250 Countdown, which is a vote of fan favorites that's conducted by SongFestival.be every year. Now, in the 10 previous editions of the Countdown, the song at the top of the list was Euphoria, Sweden's winning entry from 2012 by Lorene. While many recent winners and runners up tried to nip at Lorene's heels to clench the top spot Ziti Buoni, Arcade, 2018's runner up Fuego, it really seemed like Euphoria would never be displaced. That's until the uh, enthusiastic fan base of Spain's Chanel, who finished third in Turin with Slow Mo, took the top spot. So Lorene is now the runner up. She had a great run. Little did we know that she would return as a main character in just a few weeks. Yep. The 2023 contest is held, and as you may have heard, Finland finished second to Lorene in another case of underwhelming jury score, massive televote support. We won't be relitigating this or talking about cha-cha-cha in this episode, but it does provide an appropriate bookend to the previous 18 months. Another great thing about this year's contest presentation, particularly in the Grand Final, was how much... Also, Rands were highlighted in the performances. Like, you did have Duncan Lawrence and Netta in the group number that was the centerpiece of the grand final interval. But you had, like, Mahmoud and Dathi Frere and Sonia. Like, you had all of these, like, second, third, fourth place pe- people who did not win the contest, but have become kind of iconic figures within recent Eurovision history. Considering how Second Place featured so prominently in this year's narrative, I wanted to explore the idea in more detail of what is an iconic Eurovision performance. I wanted to put together a list of songs that kind of fit into a definition of iconic. Part of the difficulty of this is there's not really a clear definition to iconic. Like It's a very subjective term, particularly the way it's used today.
1: Yes, online I feel like we we use the word iconic too much almost of you know just thinking of the now ubiquitous sort of pop crave sort of thing thing along the lines of i'm okay i'm going to make up a headline just like lady gaga stuns an iconic new selfie
0: exactly yes trying to come up with a usable definition for this discussion was a little tricky like i mean how how would you define something as iconic particularly like a eurovision performance like what factors do you look for The first place that I
1: think of just because it is Eurovision is there is some level of strong visual identity that sticks with me. Like, I I think that's why uh, I latched on to Cha-Cha-Cha this year is that it was bright and neon and you couldn't look away to the point where you can sort of abstract the the identity of that to the like you don't even need like the actual visual. You can just like have and and I'm fairly certain we're going to talk about Verka. People are still dressing up as verka serduka. Like there were so many people in verka hats at Eurovision this year when I was in the arena. And that's a, that's an entry that was in 2007. It is a go-to I am dressing up for Eurovision outfit.
0: Also, there is life outside of the contest for some of these entries. Like I think I think of Verka and how like we often refer to it as Ukraine's national anthem because it is being used Actively outside of your vision context to rally public support, particularly in the early days of the conflict in Ukraine right now. People were using Dancing Lasha Tumbai to razz Russian soldiers. But then, like, also life outside of the contest of songs that go on to be chart topping hits or appear on the US billboard.
1: Yeah, musically, uh, I think of things where that performer doesn't win, but we keep inviting them back year after year, like Eleni Forera. Mm-hmm. like showed up in that in that lovely song swap thing a few years ago even though that song placed second
0: i i think high watermark also can be a factor but that one's kind of a weird one because like i think there are some eurovision winners that have kind of been forgotten and other songs that have finished in like second third or fourth place that even decades later, people still talk about them, still think of them fondly, and still get voted on for the ESC Top 250. I think it's that timelessness aspect that I wanted to focus on the most. So the most abstract one to try to <laughs> put concrete numbers uh, yes. on. To compile some sort of a list, and I hesitate to use the term Hall of Fame, but I feel like that that's kind of where this is going. I have a record of all of the results from the ESC Top 250. Yes, I am that nerd. And it's in spreadsheet form, so very sortable, very easy to cut the data this way and that. And I looked at all of the songs that have ranked in second place in the grand final and then cut that list down to the ones that have appeared on the ESC Top 250 every year that it's been eligible. The countdown's been run 13 times, so songs that debuted the year that the countdown debuted or before that, it would be 13 appearances. For things that have debuted after that, it's just appearing every time that they've been eligible. But that would mean every song that made the countdown last year would be eligible. And it's like, no, 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 we need it. We need to have some sort of cutoff. So I put the cutoff at 10 years. And I'll get into the why of that as we're wrapping up the show. But I got the list down to eight songs, all finished in second place that the home audience continues to recognize year after year. I was kind of surprised by how this list shook out. We're just like, oh, we're going to be hopscotching all across Europe with a lot of different songs. So the first one we'll be talking about is 1973's Runner Up, Spain's entry Eris II by Mothothafes. So what is your initial impression of this song? Like, you often refer to it as the song yes. that you hear in your Spanish 101 class.
1: <laughs> yes, because this is where I first heard this song before I even knew what your vision was. I as I absolutely, we listened to this song in Spanish class. I was given a handout with the lyric. Like, it's not Proust Madeline, but this is just sense memory of just like, okay, yes.
0: I didn't take Spanish in high school, so I don't know if I've ever really encountered this song out in the wild. The song finished four points behind Luxembourg in 1973, and it ended up becoming a worldwide hit. It even reached number nine on the U.S. Hot 100, and it's only one of five songs by an act based in Spain to reach the U.S. Top 10. And it still gets some U.S. radio airplay, uh, which is pretty amazing. And it's the Spanish version, too. There was an English version.
1: Oh, yeah, they tried to do an English version, and it's not – no, it's not the same.
0: Yeah, yeah, like mo- most DJs were just like, yeah, no, we'll just play the A-side instead. Billboard put out a list of the 50 greatest Latin songs of all time, and this one ranked as number 47. There have been dozens of cover versions, even though that was – their only U.S. hit. They did have a string of hits in the Spanish-speaking world. What do you think of this song like as a Eurovision entry and as part of the Eurovision firmament?
1: I like this one as a Eurovision entry. Like It hits sort of the early 70s orchestral pop sweet spot for me. I just like the sound of this one. There's this specific sound in 70s pop that anytime i encounter it i tend to really enjoy it it's sort of under the radar of eurovision songs that have had post-contest success especially in in the u.s part of that could be some stuff happened in 1974 <laughs> amidst the the cultural legacy of this song like i think it pops up in the movie tommy boy like if you were building a a hall of fame I'm not sure that would be the first thing that comes to mind but like if you if you saw it in the list of oh yeah these five things are getting inducted this year
0: and then you saw why absolutely looking at the video like my first thought was like oh god the fashion <laughs> uh, it is very 1973 and uh yeah yes. um. <laughs> but you know what strong visual identity true true yes uh although the, i i would say that this is still at the time of the contest where that didn't matter as much, but yeah, I mean, we'll, 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 get more into visual identity as we get through this list. The next song that landed on this list comes from the 1991 contest, Alora It is France's entry, uh, c'est le dernier, nah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get this right because I did take French in high school. <laughs> uh, France's entry, c'est le dernier qui a parler, qui a raison by Amina. One of the tidbits that came up in the research was that this was one of the longest song titles until San Marino 2012 came along. <laughs> and it was yep, just like, yep, yep, it's speaking yep. to me. so
1: <laughs> I was trying to not spoil things. You sent me the list and mm-hmm. I was trying to figure out, okay, why did, why did Mike put these on the list? And like, I could not figure out your methodology, so good work. When I heard this one, it, my brain was immediately like, I think this is the one that tied with Corolla. Mm-hmm. So just like, good job, brain. Looked up. That, that song in particular was delighted that it's the longest one and then cackled out loud when I saw that it was beaten by the Social Network song, uh-oh, uh-oh, uh, oh
0: You mentioned that this was the one that tied in 1991, and I think that that is part of the iconic status. This conceivably could have been the winner, depending on what rule or no rule was in play <laughs> at the time. Like, if this were 1969, it would have been a winner. But this was the First application of the countback rule. Like, I'm sure for some people, they're just like, oh, no, this was the winner of 1991. It was just like Sweden won on a technicality. (laughs) Listening to the track, and I think I said this at the time when we did it for Eurovision again, that it really feels of 1991, like it's kind of like post Graceland and like the Peter Gabriel world music influence Mm -hmm. aspect of it. What are your impressions of this yeah, song? Yeah, like, the
1: the other one that came up for this one for me is, yeah, definitely in, like, that that world music space, but also just kind of, like, a little bit of Enya? A little bit, yeah.
0: Yeah. Like, very soothing.
1: Yes. Talking about how this could have gone a different way, that was another one, especially as I looked over this list, where I was like, okay, so how do I think of? second place is as iconic and just sort of anything that sort of briefly rips a hole in the space time continuum and makes you want to see the alternate universe for this one is always interesting because there's one on this list that that definitely does that for me and this one's another one where it's like what would have happened if this one won instead of corolla corolla strong pop song very much what i think of of like that particular era of the contest but like this one's a little bit more of a vibe what would that have done and
0: it felt a little bit more current than Corolla's entry. Like, but I mean, it's just, I don't know, pop music was so weird at the turn of the 90s that I think it makes sense that both of them exist at the same time, but it's, it seems like Corolla was at the present and Amina was maybe a step forward. I mean, it's still dated in a way, but maybe that's just looking back at it in, with like 2023 20, mm-hmm. eyes. It's like, oh yeah, it's dated for 1991 because it was 1991
1: any sort of transition between decades music wise especially looking back it's always just weird and like you to improperly quote something just like you can see
0: the new world struggling to be born i think it makes total sense that this would be part of that list and and it's a good song like not to, not to take away from mm-hmm. the song but yeah like i i think iconic by circumstance is just as valid a reason to be considered iconic as visual identity or anything else the next song on the list Is from 1995. It is Spain's song Vuelve Conmigo by Annabel Conde. (laughs) So this was Spain's last top five finish until slow-mo last year. That might explain some of the enthusiasm behind this track. Um, Also, I think it just slaps. Like, this song is amazing. The
1: 1991 song was a little bit of Enya. This was just like, could have fully just gone on Pure Moods. Mm -hmm. I heard this in just like Pure Moods commercial.
0: Which, 1995, that would have been right in that yeah, sweet spot. So. <laughs> and
1: the, like, I should clarify, I mean that affectionately.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I do too. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, this is a solid pop song that I think you could still play it on the radio today and I don't think would be mm-hmm. out of place.
1: Yeah, no, no. Like the right format? No, this one's gonna, this one just goes.
0: I don't know if there's really much to say about it other than it's just like, no, this is just like a solidly good song. But my favorite thing about the video, and we'll have links to a Spotify playlist and a YouTube playlist for these tracks in the show notes the very end of the video clip has somebody holding a spanish flag and being very enthusiastic but this was still at the time in the contest where like everybody was seated and it was kind of like not quite going to the opera but still like kind of going to like a nice night at the theater so like people standing up and cheering was like still kind of like oh you have you must be really enthusiastic about it it's like oh proto spanish fan awesome so (laughs) Of just
1: like having seen the Spanish fans during the ESC 250. I'm like, no, I understand why this one.
0: This is a good pick all around. And yeah, I, I I think this was probably going to have a permanent placement on the ESC 250. The next track comes from 2004. It's Serbia and Montenegro's first ever entry, Lani moi by Zeljko Jaksimovic. <laughs> Samo dal si sama ljudi koji ne čuju lana moje noća skreni nije važno bio si nađi nekog, nalik me. It's so good. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Zeljko does such good work. Yeah. Like, he, like again, I was trying to not spoil myself too much, but just like looking over the list of things that he has a writing credit on, like, he
0: does really good work in this genre of like, Balkan ballad area. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the, those are in my notes exactly. Like, when we think Balkan ballad, this is immediately what jumps to my mind. He has written Five Eurovision entries and with a rubric that I'm going to be explaining a little later on the episode. All of those songs would qualify for this like hall of fame list except for audio, but that's just because there haven't been enough countdowns yet. Like it will be that will also be joining the list. This one is also kind of a trendsetter. Like this, this won the first ever semi final in 2004. And it's also one of the first non-winning songs to score more than 200 points at the contest. Granted, there were a lot more points in play because of the new semifinal format. Yeah, it was just behind Ukraine by only 17 points. Serbia and Montenegro came to play Mm -hmm. in that contest. The country would eventually split up. They only appeared as Serbia and Montenegro twice at the contest, but very strong start. Anytime I've listened to any of the other entries he's done, like he does really good work. My first exposure to him was uh, his 2012 entry, where he finished in third place. That was such a good song. He has a brand. It is a very good brand. And uh, yeah, I, I, I think you could say it's an iconic brand, just given the success mm-hmm. of everything that he's contributed to so far. In 2004, he did finish behind Ukraine, uh, which is where we are going for the next two entries on the list. 2007's Dancing Lasha Tumbai by Verka Serdushka, and 2008's Shady Lady by Annie Lorak. Shady, I've mentioned this on the show dozens of times, but Shady Lady was my entry point into Eurovision. <laughs> yep, yep. That that was the first thing that came to mind when, I,
1: when it popped up on the playlist. Like this is this is mike's entry point.
0: I don't know how much we need to go into Dancing Lasha tumbai I feel like we talk about it every third episode. It's beloved for a reason.
1: Like I mentioned towards this, the start of our discussion, it is easily boiled down to a visual shorthand that means Eurovision. Because again, people are still dressing in the Verka headdress. At at Eurovision in the arena, you, there you, there are multiple.
0: I mean, it's a fairly easy costume to throw together. You just need some tinfoil and a star shaped object, and I think it also like taps into all of the like language stuff at Eurovision, the weird pop tendencies about it. Like, I mean, it's just like it really is Eurovision shorthand, Cliff's notes. Like, show one person this entry, which we've done. The
1: Entry directly before and after it provide, like, a lovely sort of of here-is-the-full-emotional-range-of-Eurovision that can happen. Mm -hmm. But, like, if you don't have time for that with a friend, you just send them the Verka video. The puzzle I wrote for Mystery Hunt was all about love, love, peace, peace, which somehow doesn't mention this entry just because I think it just transcends all of the usual shorthand. But, like, I made sure that when I wanted teams to know what Eurovision looked like, I still sent them a link to Verka Starduchka.
0: If you don't get it after these three minutes... It's probably not for you, which is sad, but, uh, Mm -hmm. Shady Lady. Like, there's just so much, like, I mean, I still think it's just a pretty banging pop song, but it is a Dream Team entry, and I think it really does have all of the hallmarks of a Dream Team entry. Like, you have the interactive wall of emotion. You have a pop starlet selling really goofy lyrics. You have four backing dancers that are crushing extremely physical performances. I mean, like, there is so much dream team just in this performance.
1: And again, for Ukraine to come second back to back, we've talked about Ukraine's very good record at Eurovision, but back to back is second is tough.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean UK I believe's only done it a couple of times. And you have to consider like that was when there was a much smaller field. Like these this is back to back in a full field Eurovision. What I really like about the 2008 second place finish is Ukraine snuck into second place there. They were never at the top of the scoreboard. And it really wasn't until the last couple of votes coming in that they managed to get enough points to sneak into second place. So it's like, oh, that that was cool to watch when we watched it during Eurovision again. Continuing the second place finishes is 2009's entry from Iceland, Is It True by Johanna. Is it true? Yeah, I think this one checks all of the boxes that we've created so far for an Iconic List. Like, it won its semifinal. It's charted all over Europe. It's a fantastic vocal and a solid pop song that you could play on the radio today. Like, I I, I think it's doing all of it.
1: I still put it into playlists because it's a fantastic example of a Eurovision ballad. This is the one where I'm like, as much as I love fairy tale, what if this had won? How has Iceland not won the contest, given how much they love it and given how close they have come multiple times?
0: If it was like one year earlier or one year later, it probably could have happened.
1: Yeah, it would, just, it would have yeah, it would just crushed.
0: I'm glad that it's still getting the recognition that it deserves, because yeah, this is just mm-hmm. solid. And the last song on our list today comes from Turkey, and it is their 2010 entry, We Could Be the Same, by Manga. 2010 was the first contest that I like actually watched the grand final live and remembering the incredibly strong visual identity of this performance.
1: This one is always so delightful for me when it pops up on the ESC 250 because like, I, for whatever reason I keep forgetting about it and it'll come up like, this song is so
0: good. It's so good. It is a solid rock song like modern rock and it it's kind of funny because like i remember at the time just being like oh yeah this is really reminding me of incubus which i was listening to a lot of back in 2000 2001 this is 2010 and like you could probably still put this on the radio today and just be like oh is this new <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. well and just like there's something about the record scratching in the in like the instrumental mix that my my brain was just like this is the closest Eurovision gets to Lincoln Park and like I don't like Lincoln Park but I mean that very affectionately for this song.
0: It's new metal enough where it's just like okay like somebody's going to respond to it but I don't think it falls into like the trap of going over the edge. Limp biscuit. Right, right. Like, <laughs> they, they were able to hold it back just enough, and I mean it's like they they are an incredibly successful band. I, I think Eurovision was just. A stepping stone for them like I, I don't think it's hindered their success and yeah like i think it's really solidly built
1: and speaking to the timelessness quotient pop music is starting to play around with new metal tropes and and like that works so like i would love to see a little bit of that maybe seep back into eurovision let's let's i mean although just talking about the monkey's paw oh no what have i done
0: maybe the monkey's paw is listening it, it will nudge turkey back into the contest that would be great uh because yeah this kind of capped off their imperial era like after their win in 2003 they were solid for like the next seven years and then 2011 happened didn't go great 2012 they got back to the final but that was their last appearance and it would be nice to see them back in the contest i don't think it's going to happen anytime soon but uh we, we can always hope So this was a list of the runners-up with a perfect record at the ESC 250 so far. Now, if we were to compile a full Hall of Fame list, I think using 10 appearances on the countdown, so it doesn't have to be like 10 years continuous, anything like that, regardless of where it ranked in the contest, I think that's a good benchmark. With the 10 appearances, you kind of get over that recency bias that happens with the ESC 250. Yep. Granted, there's a lot of stuff that like, is always going to be on the countdown, like your water Waterloos and such. This way, you're at least making sure that there's enough mixture in the pool that everybody can still go swim in. Using that criteria, looking at my spreadsheet of weirdness, this rubric creates a list of 110 songs from the period 1956 to 2013. It's less than 10% of songs, so I think it's like, okay, this seems like a pretty good cutoff. There are other second-place songs... That would join the list that we talk about today. So that would be uh, 1974's runner up C from Italy, 1983's runner up High from Israel, 1994's Tunia from Poland, which was their debut entry, 1996's I-Ivyet from Norway. 1998's Where Are You from United Kingdom, which somehow missed the countdown in 2018. And I'm really annoyed about that. One, because it is such a good song. And two, mm-hmm. I missorted my chart when I first did my rundown of this and did a whole bunch of background research on this song. And it's like, what I don't get to use this <laughs> oh, now. No. Aw. So uh. um, But yeah, like uh Imani's Where Are You, fantastic. Uh really it was just like, Where are you in twenty eighteen? You should be there. And then 2003's Sanomi from Belgium, which I think absolutely should be included in a list of iconic entries, given that it is in a language that is completely made up for the contest. What is it with Belgium
1: and constructed language songs?
0: Brand? I don't know. <laughs> I, I
1: guess, but yeah, like, there's that one and there's oh Ulysses.
0: So using this rubric, songs from 2014 will be eligible to join this list following the results of this year's upcoming countdown. And uh, looking at the numbers, there are five songs from 2014 that could join the list, including the runner-up, Calm After the Storm, which I fully expect to join the list. Yep, 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 yep. There are 10 other songs from before 2014 that are sitting at nine appearances, including 2006's runner-up, Never Let You Go. So there could be quite a few additions to this Hall of Fame list come January 1st. Right before we started recording, I was like, "Well, let me let me like really dig through this list to see what other fun little factoids would pop up." There would be 13 songs that finished outside of the top 10 that would have this iconic status, including 2010's "Hooro Horney," which would be the only song to not qualify for the final to be considered iconic. Which I think is oh, nitty. that's fun. Yeah, yeah. I was like, "Oh, good for them." There are no songs from 2002 that are even close to being eligible. Like 2002 has very little representation on the <laughs> esc 2. Like, I don't know what what happened. to
1: <laughs> not an iconic year.
0: Yeah, I'm really curious why that is the case, because that didn't come up in Eurovision again. What happened with 2002? Why why nobody, why no likey? Uh,
1: <laughs> why have we memory hold this year?
0: I might add that to the Trello board. That could be a fun one to go back and explore. Oh, uh, yeah. So
1: <laughs> why are none of these iconic?
0: They're... Are only six songs from the 1980s that would be in the list. That does not include your favorite from the 1980s, Making Your Mind Up. Like that, that has not had enough appearances on the countdown. <laughs> so, which genuinely surprised me. It was like, huh, I, I would have guessed that that one might at least be on the cusp, but uh, that, that is not to be. Of the four winners from 1969, only one of them on the list. Un jour, un enfant from France. And then the earliest entry is 1958's Volare, which does not come as a surprise. Uh, what does come as a surprise nope. is, refrained, not, not considered iconic. I mean, it's only the first winner, you know. So. Yeah, it, it, yeah it's,
1: the, it's the first winner. Like, it, it gets the point for that, but then...
0: Yeah, no legacy, sorry. Uh, no. <laughs> um, But yeah, so that's kind of what I've come up with. There'll be something shareable eventually i still need to kind of tinker with the chart and the math and and stuff but looking like year by year except for 2002 it's usually like five to ten songs that are rising to the top which which feels correct in in terms of like how many songs are going to be recognized and i think there are recent entries that will eventually get on the list like i i'm not worried about fuego they will get there in due time which is why we're not talking about them today. So.
1: <laughs> I like this framework a lot, and it feels like we have a fun new little thing to keep an eye on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's giving this really weird spreadsheet some purpose, which is always helpful. <laughs> <laughs> that is going to do it for this episode of the Euro What. Thanks for listening. The Euro What podcast is hosted by Mike McComb, that's me, and Ben Smith. That's me.
1: If you'd like to help support the show and access a ton of bonus content, head over to patreon.com slash
0: Eurowhat. Free access to our full archive of more than 200 episodes going all the way back to the 2018 contest can be found on our website at Eurowhat.com. Next time on the Eurowhat, welcome to Sweden.